Thank you, Shanna and Anders. Good morning, everybody. Today is the last day of our four-week series about our work. And as we've done each week, I uh, want to share a story of our work. This is Jin Kang. Lots of you know Jin. He's a leader in our YA community and also has been one of our apprentices this year and uh, is, um, has become a good friend. And so uh, I, I'd love to hear, I mean, I've heard, I'd love for you to share a little bit about uh, what it is that you do uh, and, and what's kind of a day in the life these days. Yeah, so um, I'm a mechanical engineer. I work in uh, dams and hydropower. And uh, one of the, the great things I get to do is work on uh, water conveyance projects and, um, and renewable energy. And so uh, one of the cool things that I got to do more recently was uh, head over to Switzerland and um, factory test some valves uh, up in the mountains in this small uh, city called Davos. Man, way to suffer for the call of God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really. It I think was I really need hard. to factory test some <laughs> Bible software in the yeah. Swiss Alps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, it's it's really cool projects, uh, really impactful projects, and it's uh, a space I never honestly thought I'd get involved in, but just kind of stumbled into. And so that's kind of what my my day to day job is currently as a as a mechanical engineer. So. So then, where do, where does your faith in Christ and your journey? Uh, in in your calling, where does that intersect your work right now? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think it was a couple years ago that I felt like God was putting on my heart uh, a desire to uh, contemplate young adults ministry, vocational ministry. And um, I remember a long, long ago that uh, my mom actually said, hey, one day you're going to become a pastor. You know, when, when you're a teenager, you just kind of scoff and chuckle. And it's kind of funny how, how years down the road, uh, it kind of started becoming a thing in my head. And uh, as I've kind of uh, spent the last couple of years trying to discern uh, what that looks like, um, I've realized that that desire to uh, engage young adults and, and work with them in a stage of life that's really pivotal in their faith is something that I'm, I'm very, very passionate about. Um, however, it's like, what do I do? Um, because I'm a mechanical engineer that works on valves and pipelines, and uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't necessarily think that could, you know correlates to uh, working with young people. So, <laughs> um, it's been something that's been very uh, interesting over the last uh, couple years. Um, this apprenticeship has really helped um, paint a clearer picture. But what I've also recognized is that uh, timing is is everything. And what I've realized is that um, in the season that God has me in now, um, he's still trying to work out certain things in my character, certain things in my faith that are going to better equip me and prepare me hmm. for that next season. And so it's, it's not right now. Um, but, but I've kind of wrestled with that of like how, how like we want to be where, where, where we feel God's uh, called us to be, hmm. but... We don't want the preparation. Right. We, <laughs> we, we don't want to wait to become the person we need to be in order to fulfill um, that, that space well. Yeah. And so we rush out of those seasons uh, trying to get to the next spot uh, prematurely. And so what I've realized is that, like, yeah, I need to just be uh, patient and faithful in the season God has me now, be the best engineer I can be 
and then um, you know okay, eventually. Okay, so bonus uh, question. Um, yeah. I told you two questions, but I want to ask you one more. Can I do that? Yeah. Okay. Um, the so what do you do with that incongruity, that sense of calling? That I mean, most all of us who know Jin don't have a hard time seeing Pastor Jin in in your future. I mean, you have the gifts, you have the heart, but you don't have the job. And as you said, the, the sense of this is God's timing. So, what do you do? You just like put that on the shelf oh, until no. then, or what? Do you, how does that play out? Like, yeah, no, does that eat away at you? Or? Yeah, uh, you know what's interesting is um, oftentimes I feel like. Um, if you get so fixated on something that's so different, uh, you forget to realize that God is a God of the present and he uses you in today. And so in that space, you, you know, on this work trip, actually, I, albeit I was snowboarding, so, you know, that, that wasn't for work, but <laughs> suffering, suffering. Rejoice um, and be glad, Jen, for likewise they persecuted the prophets before you. Yeah. So, <laughs> But, you know, I, I, you know, to no surprise to my friends, I, I fell. And, uh, you know, some random skier behind me saw me, and we just struck up a conversation. And, um, and you know, I realized that uh, in talking to him for, like, the next hour as we're enjoying a beer and, you know, seeing the beautiful mountains, um, I got to know him a little bit. And I got to practice, like, what does just caring for people mean? Like, how do you do that? And, and how can you share your faith boldly mm. without, like, judging people who don't even believe in Jesus? I mean, this, this individual was an, an atheist uh, from the, from the uh, Czech Republic. And, um, but it was just so cool just being able to wow. hear his story, his perspective. <laughs> but, like, trying to just love him well um, and show him just a sliver of what Jesus could look like. And, um, and I realized that, that that's really what pastoral ministry is in the meantime, is like mm. trying, to, trying to see those little pockets of time where, where God is there. It, it's just, are we mature and aware enough to realize that he's, he's using those? Wow. Man, that's good stuff right there. That, I think all we need to do is sing a final song, say a prayer, ring and go. That's the sermon. But before you, that's great, Jen. Thank you so much for sharing that. Before you, you um, step down, I, I also want to brag on you. While on this trip, Jen orchestrated his girlfriend's coming and got engaged. So, like, congrats, one. Captain oh, Smooth, you. two. Nothing says, like, you want to spend the rest of your life with me like the Swiss Alps and valves the size of my bedroom. Yeah, um, luckily Taylor was able to meet me in, uh, in Venice, Italy. Uh, I kind of tacked that on as an extra aside. And uh, I, I love you, Tay. I know you're watching this. Uh, she's in Fort Worth uh, pursuing a, a um, CRNA degree, which is uh, nurse anesthetist. Um, nice. I probably butchered that, but uh, she's brilliant, way That's smarter good. than me. But Well, bro, well, congratulations, and thank, thank you. you so much. Can we just thank God and appreciate Jen? That's good work. All right, as you know, we're in a series called What You Do. It comes out of the book of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, where the Word of God says, whatever you do, whether you are uh, an electrician like JD, or um, whether you're an engineer designing valves like Jin. Whether you're an artist like Aaron shared last week, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart because you're working for Jesus. So work as though that were the driving force. Now, 
The series comes to an end this morning. As you heard Anders talk about, we're turning the corner into Passion Tide starting next week. And at the same time, our work goes on and many of us are just sort of getting our minds around this subject and maybe newly awakening to the possibility that my work is more than something to be gotten through, you know, sort of like uh, a means to an end or uh, a necessary evil, but that God's glory manifests in my work and his purpose in my life, even if it isn't my magnum opus or the thing that fills my life with joy right now. So we're going to launch an equipping course, which will happen on Sunday mornings before service, kind of the traditional first hour Sunday school format for several weeks, kind of like the EHS course that's starting after service today. That starts right after Easter uh, in April. So mark your calendars just to sort of um, save the date. We'll give you more detailed information in the coming days. But that's going to be really practical, discussion-oriented, around tables, talking with one another about where we find Jesus in our work and what this asks of us. And a whole new world of possibilities, like Jin just shared, of being an ambassador for Christ in what whatever it is that we do. So just want to put a plug in for that and ask you to mark your calendars for right after Easter. All right, Lord, would you bless our time in your word? None of us needs to hear my words. Your words are eternal. They're where the power is. And so Holy Spirit, would you fill us? Would you illuminate your word and transform our lives? We give it our attention now. And this is our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we're in 1 Samuel for our text. We're going to look at an Old Testament narrative. We've bounced around in this series. It's topical, so we've picked a different text to exposit each week. This week, we're looking at Old Testament narrative, and it's the story of David as he becomes the king, or in his, in his prequel years before he becomes the king more precisely. The Word of God teaches that the Lord said to the prophet Samuel, how long are you going to mourn for Saul? Saul was the one whom God gave the people of Israel when they said, we want to be like the other nations and have a king. But Saul messed it up. God rejected him. And he says to Samuel now, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I've chosen one of his sons to be king. And so there's a bit of interaction here in the narrative between Samuel and God around that rejection of Saul. And I'll leave you to read some of the parts that we're going to move past for the sake of our discussion because part of studying the word when it's a narrative or a historical text is it's a long chunk. And so for the sake of time, we're going to skip through it. I'll ask you to read 1 Samuel 16 and 17 all the way through this week. You'll enjoy it. Okay, verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. So Samuel arrives, says to this unassuming shepherd family, something big's in store for one of your boys. There's eight of them. So Jesse gets them and sort of Captain Von Trapp style has them parade in front, minus the cutting up of the curtains and silly, frivolous other things like that. And he, he says, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. So he asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, okay, send for him. We won't sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, 
Rise and anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And Samuel then went to Ramah. So there's a couple of things that we need to notice in the text right away. Sometimes in narrative study, they don't stand out. We've got to kind of mine out the nuggets from the seemingly routine details of time and place. A couple of things that are very important to note. One is that the Bible says that when he arrives, Samuel notices that David is ruddy. And I wasn't sure of what that meant, so I looked it up, and it means red or reddish in complexion. And um, so I guess it's important, and I want you to note, that God finds reddish people handsome. (laughs) Just saying. I mean, it's not me, it's there. Um, But as one who doesn't tan, but sort of Tinkins um, <laughs> did something. It hit, it, it hit different, as the kids say. The second thing that stands out to me here is that Samuel shows up sort of out of the blue. It's not like he was a regular dinner guest with Jesse. Totally rocks this family's world and then says, this is the one, pours oil on his head. The only ones that see this presumably are his family says you're going to be the king. And then it says, after that, just stark detail, it jumps straight to this. Samuel then went to Ramah. He brings this world upending news and then heads right out. And so that leaves David to wrestle through, what does this mean? And how does this work? And what am I supposed to do? Like, you know, I can imagine if I'm David, that that out of the blue of a calling clarifier. Maybe there was something in David that already sensed that he was made for something more. But God coming and affirming that in such a clear, unmistakable way, I'd kind of expect the next steps to happen in an equally dramatic, clear and unmistakable way, right? Like if you saw the fairy godmother come and turn the pumpkin into a carriage, then you're kind of expecting something equally magical to happen to take the next step. But what's amazing more than anything else in this story isn't what it says, but what it doesn't say, what you're left to infer. And that is that David went to sleep with these dreams of grandeur and he woke up the next morning and everything was the same. If his world turned upside down the night before, It turned right side up again that morning with no explanation whatsoever. And David's left to go back to the fields, return to the sheep, and wrestle through and ask the hard question like, what am I supposed to do with this? How do I wield this? What do I do while I wait for it to come to pass? What do I do in the meantime? So that's our title this morning. David's plight is our plight. It's Jen's plight. I appreciate how candidly you shared what so many of us have wrestled with. And that is really, if you want to put it in theological terms, it's the tension between our occupation and our vocation, right? Occupation is what we do with our main waking hours, perhaps what we do for income, what we do that gives our life purpose or is kind of the edge of our saw. Vocation is our calling from God, right? It's, a, it's used in the secular context, but it's a sacred or spiritual world, word, and it comes from the Latin word vox, which means voice, like Bono Vox. His name isn't actually Bono. Did you know that? That means good voice in Latin, um, which is very literally true, right? Very descriptive. Well, vocation is what the voice of God 
says of us. It's our calling. And so many of us find our calling to overlap with or align completely with our occupation. But lots more of us, like Jen described, have experienced this tension of our occupation being here and our sense increasingly clear as we walk with Jesus of our vocation, our calling, that with which God set us apart from the beginning, that which God put us here to do, sees these as separate. And that creates a tension. What do I do if my occupation and my vocation are not aligned and there doesn't seem to be a clear path for them to converge? This notion of calling for that reason, an important concept in the life of faith has become a bit of a bugaboo in the Christian experience. This ever elusive, always just beyond the horizon notion. And we've done what we tend to do as modern Westerners with our faith. We've commoditized it and we've turned it into a consumer product, right? Our calling is something that we want to arrive at, achieve, make happen. It's a destination in our minds. But I think what this passage teaches as we look at it in depthly is that our calling as such is less of a destination and more of a journey. The calling isn't the place we arrive at once we get our dream job, but it's the journey in the way we follow Jesus along the way. One of our core principles here at Denver United, you see it in neon on the wall, and we talk about it every week, live with Jesus, live in family, and live on mission. That's what we believe it means to be the people of God. Living with Jesus isn't getting a download from Jesus or getting a training course from Jesus or having a mountaintop experience with Jesus and then saying, man, thanks, go take care of something in like Southeast Asia, I got this, and then going and achieving that calling for ourselves. That's a Western postmodern way of thinking. The calling is an invitation to his presence and to do whatever we do, not only as though we were doing it for him, but in the practical awareness that we are doing it with him. Eugene Peterson said in his autobiography, the pastor of this work of calling every step and arrival. But our culture steeps us from birth in this preoccupation, right, with momentary happiness, personal fulfillment. And that's pressurized and distorted a little bit, this concept of calling. And so what we do is we find ourselves tempted to lament or begrudge the work that we, in fact, currently do because of or in the name of this righteous calling. Or it tempts us just to phone it in, right? To do it as we've said growing up in our household, half butt. Right? It doesn't have the same ring, but it's PG-13. You know, I, um, as I've told you many times before, started my career after college in the army. It wasn't ultra optional. Uh, the army or you, more precisely, my fellow taxpayers paid for my very expensive college education. Um, so thank you. And I paid you back by blowing things up that looked like, like 
pieces of plywood that looked like Soviet uh, 70s, Soviet-era tanks, um, principally, um, for four years. So you're welcome, I guess. <laughs> but the, the fact is, I sensed, like Jen, when I was in college, uh, a calling from God to do more or less what I do now, but I had no idea how that was going to come to pass, and I assumed, like, you know, the, the same one who called me in this mystical way was going to mystically transport me into it. But as I lived my life, it kept taking me what seemed to be further and further away from the expression of that calling. And I remember really struggling, especially with gunnery. Did anyone, was anyone in the military or perhaps in, in, um, in the police force or something like that, where you do gunnery, where you're training to shoot weapons better and better? Um, I thought, what a, I mean, the, tempting to, the temptation to just phone it in was super big because it took a lot of work. And as the commander of the unit, I had a lot of administrative and leadership and motivational responsibilities to get people to take gunnery seriously, practicing so that we hit the tank targets that we aimed at so that if we had to go to war, we could do a good job defending our country. That was the, the theory, right? Um, but I thought, I'm not only not doing what I'm called to do, but I'm supposed to be in the saving business, and here I am in the killing business instead, and I'm supposed to be applying myself with all my heart to being a better killer? How does that work? And that really was a struggle for me, and I think that that, some version of that struggle is familiar to many of us. 1 Samuel 16, the story continues in verse 14, now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. And so that brings up a, a thorny theological subject. Like, what is exactly an evil spirit from the Lord? Like, how does that work? The truth of the matter is, I have absolutely no idea. But as it turns out, Pastor Daniel said he woke up in the night with a dream and God showed him exactly what he means, so just ask him afterward. <laughs> All right, so whatever that means, they said, here's what we think you should do. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, okay, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man, ruddy even. <laughs> See, I didn't say it. Let another compliment you, not yourself. That's what the Bible says. And the Lord is with him. So they did, and he did, and David came to Saul and entered his service. A couple of things we need to mine out of this passage of narrative, a couple of nuggets to dig out. One is that demons evidently don't care for harp music. Like, who knew? But fortunate for David, because he was good at harp playing. Right? And it's, it's funny, if you think about it, that he didn't get ushered into the realm of his calling, like king, kingdom, palace, you know, that, at least in the neighborhood, because God had singled him out or because of any of his leadership or fighting qualities initially, but because he was good at playing the harp. Go figure. I can imagine being out there with the sheep after experiencing that anointing to be God's 
king over his people, he would have he had to be tempted to phone it in. And yet, his reputation was as being good at it. So he came to Saul and entered his service. Now that had to be at once encouraging and discouraging for David. Think about him making the journey from Bethlehem to where Saul was in camp to go be with him. And uh, he's going along the road. I think he's kind of like, I picture him anyway, teenage David, kind of like Simba. You know, I just can't wait to be king. Kind of doing that along the road, thinking, finally, I paid my dues. I went back. Scholars think it might have been 10 years more of shepherding before the time came that he got called to the palace, wondering all the while, how is this going to go down? Like, how is it going to come to pass? I'm not going to go wage a coup d'etat. Probably thought about that, decided against it. So God's going to have to do this. Hey, they asked me to come to the palace. Sweet, here we go. Game on. Paid my dues. Put in my time. And he gets there and he's like, all right, I'm ready. What are we doing? And they're like, well, here's the thing. The king, we don't really talk about this. The king's got some... Eman Day Oblum Demons? Yet we don't talk about it, right? But what we're going to need you to do is when the demons start happening, we need you to set up your harp and play it. Like that had to be a, what you talking about, Willis, moment. You know, like, what? What, what even is that? Is it, are you under the impression that demons don't care for harp music? Like, why is that going to help? But nonetheless, it says he came and entered Saul's service, knowing that he was supposed to be king and God had rejected Saul. Fascinating, powerful insight. Your calling, wherever it goes, However it manifests, it starts by learning to be a servant. This is the headwaters of the calling, walking with Jesus and discovering, I was made not to be served, but to serve. That's the essence of Jesus' gospel. Remember when he caught the disciples in the embarrassing conversation of who was the greatest? He had just told them, we were going to hang out in Galilee for a while, but all the while the plan was to go to Jerusalem where I'm going to be brutally killed. And they're like, I wonder what he means by that. I don't know, but did you see me when we got sent out? I was pretty darn great. No, I mean, I don't even know how they got from there to here, but they're arguing over who's the greatest and Jesus intersects the conversation. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> and then he's like, you guys want to be great? Have you been listening to nothing I've said? Have you not watched me? You want to be great? Shame on you. You're Christians. Didn't you know you're supposed to be losers? Somebody said. He's like, okay, guys, come on, bring it in. Huddle up. He's like, you guys want to be great? Good. Because I made you for greatness. Now, let me tell you how to get it. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Learn to be the servant of all. 
Even the Son of Man, he concluded by saying, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This is elemental to our understanding and pursuit of God's calling for us because it has to do with what we're doing it for. We have to settle it. Either our work is for God's glory or it is for our own. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It's used throughout the Old Testament. And Pastor John Mark Comer, in his wonderful work, by the way, on this subject of our work and its holiness called Garden City, observes God's kavod isn't his fame. Listen, it's his presence. The fact that he is there in our work, not far away, but close. We can glorify God by doing our work in such a way that we make the invisible God visible by what we do and how we do it. We've been talking about that and hearing stories about that over the last several weeks. Some people's work glorifies God directly, writing a book about God or preaching a sermon about God or something like that. But most people's work, the fact is, glorifies God indirectly. And that's okay. That's good. My point, he concludes, is that what you do can be done for God's kavod, for his glory. And that's where calling begins. The temptation continues in our work to view what we do as a stepping stone on the pathway to our calling that's out there, which is spiritual speak for our dream job, where we're going to make a lot of money, have a lot of power, or be famous. Too often, we lose entirely the notion in the context of our work that serving, that's the heart of God's glory in our work, irrespective of what it is that we do. It's recognizing that it's not about us. It's about God's kavod. And that doesn't come naturally. That comes with training. That comes with discipline. We tend to follow our feelings and for many of us, work doesn't feel good. But understanding the value of our work as service might not feel good. And that's allowed. That's possible. Pastor Nikki Gumbel observed, if service is beneath you, then leadership is beyond you. Let's wrap it up. 1 Samuel 17. Okay, we're skipping ahead in the story to the next chapter, and we're in verse 13. Now, in the intervening years, the people of Israel had gone to war with the people known as the Philistines. At the time that David was alive, these were their arch rivals, right? And this is like the Nuggets playing the Sixers and Jokic and Embiid, which this guy is going to be at with my son tomorrow night. So, yes. So excited for that. But this is like that, except people die rather than get the MVP. So that's not good. Okay, so David said to Saul, okay, let me give you a little more context. Um, no, figure it out. 
sake of time. Okay, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war, right? So he's drafted them, basically. David's the youngest, though, and so he went back and forth from Saul to, t- to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread to your brothers and hurry to their camp and take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. More narrative, more detail. I've got to mind this out. Look, David had finally, after years of going back to the sheep, at least taken a step, albeit once the details became clear, a humbling step, but he had taken a step toward his calling. He's hanging out in the palace, listening in on the war plans, whatever. And then the war starts, the older brothers get drafted, and Jesse calls and he's like, David, I'm going to need you to come home and help with the sheep. And David's like... I'm already on a very not steep ramp toward my calling. This feels like steps backward, but David goes. And so he's now going back and forth, moonlighting as a shepherd and a demon-soothing harpist. I'm not even sure like that fits on a business card. What do you, where does that fit, by the way, in the palace hierarchy? It's like got to be just one rung above like the court jester, like do, 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 do. You know what I mean? Where do, but those are his two jobs. This which like undignified and even more undignified, but he's going back and forth between his home and his job to tend the sheep. And then his dad's like, hey, go check on your brothers. Bring them these like granola bars and cliff bars. They're probably not eating well. And he's like, fine. So he shows up and he's like, oh, here, take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. So he gets there and he's like, Shama, dad sent me this bread for you. And he's like, great, thanks, man. And then he probably gets busted on by his brother because they're jealous because they know he's going to be king. And so they want to get it in while they can. And they're like, you know, what are you doing here? Who's with the sheep and all that? And then David endures and he's like, shut up, whatever. And then Shama's like, he's like, all right, I got to get back to the grown up more stuff. And David's like, oh, Shama, one more thing. Um, where's your commander's tent? And he's like, what do you want my commander for? Shut up, just tell me where his tent is. It's over there, but don't say anything dumb and embarrass me. David's like, fine. So he's like, kum, kum, kum. yeah, who is it? Sir, it's David. I'm Shammah's little brother. Yeah, what do you need? My dad asked me to give you these cheeses. <laughs> like he had to be saying what the hell? Like, what am I doing? Sorry, but David, he would have sworn. So would you. And you know it. So stop judging me. <laughs> Service isn't a box we check. It's a life we live. His service didn't propel him forward into his glorious calling, but it seemed to propel him backward. You know what it did, though? It trained his heart. It trained his heart to see himself as the servant of all. And then we'll wrap it up here. Verse 32 down in 1 Samuel 17. David, while coming to bring the cheeses, hears Goliath taunting the soldiers and intimidating them. And he goes to Saul, all audacity. And he's like, he knows Saul because he's his demon-soothing harpist. You know, it'd be like having your massage therapist show up in your, when you're about to like acquire a company. And you're like, what are you doing here? 
And he's like, can I have a word with you? Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul, of course, replies, you know the story. You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he defied the armies of the living God. Look, if ever anyone had reason to phone it in, at work, it would have been David, the soon-to-be king, while he's watching the sheep. What possible motive could you have to go get a sheep out of a lion's mouth? It doesn't say the lion painted him into a corner and he had no choice but to defend himself and fight off. It says a lion came and he's like, he's like, oh no, like inner Queen Latifah comes up and he goes after the thing. Like I could think of half a million justifications not to do that off the top of my head. Like I wouldn't, it would be irresponsible, irreligious even to endanger the royal digits. Like wait a year and a half and I'll buy you a whole new flock. It's one sheep. But he went after the thing, chased it down, grabbed it by the hair and bludgeoned it to death. That's bad. I don't know about you guys, but I grew up going to church and with the flannel graph where there was like the little David and the giant Goliath. And they always heard the story this way. Maybe they didn't say it, but this is how it was implied. Like David gets out there and he can't, doesn't want Saul's armor because it's clunky, but he relies on God and he gets a stone and he puts it in his sling and he goes, closes his eyes and he's like, you know, like in Princess Bride, guide my sword, father. And then he like haplessly releases it and then God prays over the thing. And then like an angel is dispatched from heaven, intercepts the flight path of that rock and and it hits the giant in the forehead. When David, as the story sort of is conveyed, is it surprises him? He was like, dang, it worked. And it might be that it happened that way. Who knows? But maybe, just maybe, David killed the giant that day and was propelled into the next season of his calling, into authority. Not because he got lucky or because God sovereignly intercepted the flight path of his haphazardly thrown rock, but because he was a good rock slinger. Maybe he killed the giant and he did it with relative ease because he had done it a thousand times before. Maybe he was like, you know, I'm trying to be humble here, like appreciate the offer of the armor, but I don't think it's going to last that long, bro. I don't think I need it. you're You're a boy. You're the fighting man. I know, I know. Be humble, David. But it's like inner conversation. You ever have your inner conversation while your boss is like, wah, 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 and you're like, yes, sir. But his inner conversation is like, compared to lions and bears, which are, you know, agile, quick, nimble, the, the giant is quite stationary and somewhat lumbering and sort of easy. 
And so it might have been that he was like, oh, no, help me, God. Or he might have been like, fee, fi, fo, fum, I will cut off your head and feed it to the... Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm. Hang on just a second. Mm. I will kill you and cut your head off. You guys want to go to Chipotle or, or are you feeling wings? I mean, I kind of think it might have gone down that way because the sheep, the harp, the cheeses, it was all God's preparation. He uses all our work, if we'll let him and not fight against him, to prepare us for further service. God trained his heart and he trained his hands. And little did he know what was happening while he was living out his calling in the kavod glory of God's presence, doing the work faithfully along the way. I remember the first time I ever preached to anyone, ever. It was on a Sunday morning at a really big church of 10,000 plus. And my boss called me on, I was 25. I know, insane, who does that? Called me on a Friday night of like, two days before Sunday fame. I mean, my, I have a staff of millennials. They balk if I don't give them a month to prepare. Just kidding. Love you guys. Totally appreciate your boundaries. Hey, millennials, I have an idea. You might not have thought of it. Boundaries. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. They're vi- they, don't they do an amazing job when they teach and preach? I love our staff. I'm just saying, no one had thought of millennials when Gen X was the young people. We just got like... Kurt Cobain shamed and told to prepare a sermon for 10,000 people in 18 hours. And so I was like, before my brain could really catch up, my heart was like, heck yeah. And then, I, so we had a, this really big church. It's more like a small town on the north side of Colorado Springs. And thus it had multiple properties, one of which was called the World Prayer Center. And it kind of looked like the Starship Enterprise, had flags all around it and sat on the edge of our property. And I checked myself into a hotel room there thinking, if ever I need the prayers of the entire world, it is now because I am about to die of mortification. I, oh, what have I done? I mean, horrifying, horrifying feeling. Uh, so then the next morning, I get up and um, go to the church and, you know, I have my one suit on and everything. And I stand up and preach and I was so full of adrenaline. I poured my heart out. And I, I, it wasn't until later that it occurred to me that I never, I never once felt nervous. That went on to be, this is back, this dates me, the, the best-selling tape, sermon tape in, in the church's history at that time. Now, I take no credit for that because I literally had never done this before. God works through it. Maybe they felt bad for me. I don't know what. It went okay. I've been doing it ever since. And I thought about that in the, in the days and weeks that followed. And I thought maybe, you know, like, God dispatched an angel that intercepted the butterflies and took them out of my stomach. Or maybe I did it under my own nose with somewhat relative ease because in spite of myself, I had done it a hundred times before. When you stand in front of a congregation of 10,000, most of whom are 
older and more successful in everything than you, and you're going to teach them about like the persistent widow, you know that they know that they know that, you know, it's like preaching to Leon and Kathy here. There's nothing that I say that they both haven't studied more extensively than me and probably taught in multiple settings. It's intimidating for the first 20 years, and then you get over it. But on the first day, very much so. And you're talking to a bunch of people that you know that they know, that they know that you know, that they have taught that story that you're about to teach since you were in kindergarten. And there's this really subtle combination of humility that says, like, I know who you are and I honor that with authority that says, I don't care if I look like I'm 12 or if I am 12. The God of heaven has asked me to stand up here and by God, I'm going to teach this passage, right? That combination is what keeps you from crumpling. And what I realized is all those years when I was consternating over gunnery, I was also giving operations orders to grizzled soldiers, sergeants who had been doing the battle I was about to tell them how to do since I was in kindergarten. When you stand in front of grizzled sergeants who literally call you Opie, that was my nickname for you old folks. I looked like I was, I mean, I look young now and I'm in my forties. I looked very young when I was 22 and you have to give a battle order telling them what to do. There's a very important combination of humility that says, I know that you know that you know that I know, Leon, that you have been doing this since I was in kindergarten with authority that says, I don't care if I look 12 or if I am 12. The United States government has asked me to lead this battle and by God, I'm going to lead it. Without the first, you get shot in the back. Without the second, you get ignored. I learned that subtle skill set right under my own nose by doing it a thousand times. And when I stood up to do it in the context of the thing I love most, teaching the scriptures, it was like I had been doing it for a long time because I kind of had. What's the point? There is no wasted work. God cultivates who we're becoming through whatever we're doing. He cultivates our heart for service and our hands for capability. So do the work with Jesus in his presence, in his kavod, with discernment, and listening for the voice of God. Treat it all like the calling and treat it all like training. God will take your lions and bears and turn them into the next season of his purpose for your existence. Amen? Make sense? Would you stand with me? It's time for us to worship. I just want to speak this over you like a blessing as we prepare to worship. 1 Thessalonians 5. Just Would you just receive this? Close your eyes. Maybe just receive this word. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Friends, the truth is God cares more about your calling than you do. He created you in his image before the foundations of the earth were laid in place for good works that he prepared in advance for you to do.
And he who called you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen? Amen. Let's respond to the Lord in worship.